Well, today is the, uh, we got, I think, two more weeks of uh, Total Request Live. Um, this is a, uh, a series that we're doing at Coast uh, here during the, uh, the summer where we're taking requests, basically, uh, people in the congregation who have questions about anything at all that they think that they'd like to hear um, something uh, from the pulpit about. You're free to, uh, to send it to me or to Neil, and we'll do our best to hit it. Um, today, we are talking about the Imago Dei, the Imago Christi. Uh, that's the Latin for image of God or image of Christ. Um, if you are familiar with the scriptures, you may remember that uh, image is this really important word, but it's also a very vague word. It's very, uh, it could be a lot of things. I mean, even in English, when we use the word image, it's, it's, uh, it could mean a ton of different things. Um, and so we'll, let's just uh, maybe just stand up and we'll, we'll read um, the, the, the premier foundational image text in the scriptures that comes from Genesis 1, 26 to 28. If you would not mind standing, let's take a look at it. Uh, It'll be behind me on the screen. It says, Then God said, Let us make man or humanity in our image according to our likeness. Let human beings have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You may be seated. And you hear that text. It's, it's, it's very obscure, very strange. I mean, the first thing that you notice is that it let us... There's a plurality to God. Uh, some scholars think that it, there, it's, it, this is poetry, uh, by the way. Genesis 1 is mostly poetry. And there's an image of like the divine council. Um, and there's you know, uh, divine beings, what we think of as God and angels. And that, that somehow explains the, the plurality, let us. Well, I disagree. I, I think that this is clearly um, a place where we see the triune God, the triune nature of God, that within God's own being, there is multiplicity, there is plurality. And somehow that um, is, is implicated in this idea of making human beings in God's image. That to be in God's image somehow deals with plurality. And you've noticed that I've, uh, I've, I've highlighted, let them have dominion. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But we're going to see that the image of God is tied up with rule, with dominion, and with authority. Now, uh, the image of God, if for, if for any of you who've, who've been in church for a while, or maybe even outside of the church, but you've, you've heard um, theological language before, you'll, you'll think that there's probably been places in your life where um, the image of God might be kind of mysterious, and, there, and you've heard maybe some things about it. Well, I've, I've broken down the, the grand, huge history of this theology into basically three different um, Elements, But I, I want to point out that the, the question of the image of God is usually done as a speculative question rather than an exegetical question. Speculative means that we think about how the universe is and we sort of do philosophy, right? And so we're, the, the image of God is usually uh, consigned to the realm of philosophy rather than exegesis. Exegesis is the study of the scriptures whereby we try to get um, to the, the, the true meaning of the text so that the text itself guides what we think about something. And so when we've talked about the image of God in the tradition, it usually goes like this. Uh, someone will ask a question. They'll say, well, in order to understand what the image of God is, we must ask something like, how are humans 
sort of like God, because it says image and likeness, so something the image of God must have something to do with how we're like God. And how is that distinguished from how we're like or unlike the animals, right? So the idea being that if we could figure out how human beings are different from the rest of the creatures in God's world, whatever that difference is, that must be what the image of God is. And you can see that's a philosophical question. It's like, well, animals are like this, 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 and this. And uh, God's like this, 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 and this. And we share this thing with God that we don't have with the animals, right? Or you might ask, what special powers do humans have that they share with God? What are the things that we have that are special to us that we share with God? Or you might think about what you think is the most important about humanity, right? You might say, what part of human persons is most divine, most godlike? And usually that's a code language for what do I think is the most important or most valuable part of humanity? And that must be the image of God. And that's really led to three different traditional answers to the question of what the image of God is. And all the way up, um, really until the Reformation, uh, there was a unified vision of this, and we really get it probably first from St. Augustine. But it's that the human, power, uh, the human power of reason or intellect is what makes us the image of God. And this is true for any um, people that are heavily influenced by Platonic philosophy, which, if you know what that is, it, it, it really emphasizes the importance of the rational power of human beings, that that's what's transcendent, that's what's important, and that's what we share with God. That's what makes us different than the animals, and therefore, that must be what the image of God is. Secondly, is, uh, this is really in the Reformation. It was started by Martin Luther, then carried on and perfected, I would say, by John Calvin. And it's the, the idea that the, it's the human power of moral action or deliberation is what separates us from the animals, and that that is what we share with God. That is what God's image is. When uh, the lion on the savannas of Africa is chasing a, what do they chase? Deer, antelope, ocelots? I don't know. Dinner, when they're chasing dinner, the, the lion doesn't stop and think, is this right? What? I'm that, poor, that poor wounded animal, does it really deserve to suffer? Well, I'm hungry, so I'd better take... That's not what happens. The, animal, the, the lion doesn't have that sort of moral calculus in the same way that we would, or, or uh, we wouldn't. I guess there's that hunter that, that shot that really important lion a couple weeks ago, and that guy's like persona non grata now. Um, but but re- presumably, because as a human being, he's able to think about the moral consequences of his actions in a way that animals not, and he's therefore culpable in a way that an animal would not be. There we go. That must be the image of God. Uh, the third, and this was really begun in the last century by Karl Barth, and it's been powerfully influential. You maybe have been influenced by it, whether you know it or not. But uh, the Swiss-German theologian Karl Barth um, suggested that it's the human power to, in our um, gender-sex differentiation, notice that in Genesis it says he made them male and female right after the bit about the image of God, that that differentiation and the way that humanity must come together to properly know God, it's only by human community, and principally shown through the relations between the gender, uh, the sexes, them coming together is an image of actually God's own triuneness, that God in God's self is three different persons working in community, and that it's only in our community, in our relationality, that we're able to be together as one with other human beings and to be with God um, and you might have noticed in the last, say, 50 years, especially in the evangelical tradition, there's been a lot of talk about community. Human beings were uh, 
created for community, that if you're a hermit out you know, doing whatever it is that you're doing, you're doing humanity wrong. Well, that very much comes from this theological idea that was uh, instituted by Karl Barth, that the image of God is the human power to reflect God's intra, meaning in between, inside, Trinitarian re- relationality. Well, that stuff was all wrong. So if you thought any of that, you're just, you're off the reservation. I mean, it's just, thankfully you have me here to guide you into all truth. Wait, I th- no, that, that's the Holy Spirit. But hopefully he and I can work together on this. Um, there's a real big problem with all these different traditional answers, and that is namely they fail the test of exegesis, the, text of, uh, the, the, the test of looking at the text. Um, and I'm just going to point out two major problems. An image of God... Um, exegesis that all of these ideas fail. And I'm going to to supply later a new idea of what the image of God is that should explain these things. So here it is. Um, In Genesis 126a, when it says, then God said, let us make, that's na'ase, mankind in our image, in our likeness, and NIV translates, so that they may rule. Um, so that they may rule. It's a very strange grammatical, um, it's not that strange, it's uh, called a cohortative followed by a jussive, but what it really means is it's the same thing as the English equivalent of in order that, or for, or since, or because, or in order to. It's the same thing as uh, the difference between two English sentences, let's go to the park and play with our friends. I say this to Alice. Let's go to the park and play with our friends. That and right there, what that means is it could be, it could be that going to the park is an end in itself and it's just fun. And if there are friends there, playing with them is an end in itself and it's fun too. But the park and the friends are not necessarily connected. Compare that to Alice. Let's go to the park to play with our friends. Notice that in English we use um, the infinitive to play uh, to connect the earlier verb. Let's go to play, in order that. The same exact construction happens in the Hebrew, in Genesis 1.26a, indicating, really compelling us to say, that let us make in order that they may rule. What that means is that our uh, the human vocation to rule in the world, whatever that is, over the fish and the, all that, and we'll talk more about that later, but whatever that is, that is intimately connected to um, our being in the image of God. In fact, our, our being in the image of God must have that as an effect. Likewise, uh, the image of God comes up in Genesis 9.6. We read, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be uh, shed. Because, for, since, in the image of God, he made human beings. And so there's this interesting connection. Because we're in the image of God, a person who lives by violence is destined to die by violence. There's a kind of, you might call it a blood law, that the person who lives by blood dies by blood. And somehow that is the result, that is the direct result of our being in the image of God, which is very strange. And notice that if you just think that the image of God is your reason, that doesn't explain why the blood law exists. It doesn't, that, that part of the image of God doesn't explain why uh, blood for blood nor does it explain ruling and authority. Why would that come from the image of God if the image of God is just intellect or rational powers? And the same could be said of moral calculus, of relationality. The old answers fail the exegetical test. They don't explain why it is that these particular effects come from the image of God. 
Um, I think I'm going to move quickly through the, uh, the Hebrew just because we're short on time. But uh, the Hebrew for image is uh, salem. And really the most important thing is to note that it, it gets used throughout the Old Testament. It really can mean everything from a shadow. Um, and there's a couple psalms that use it in, in like a, a human, a human life is like a shadow that vanishes quickly. It can mean everything from shadow all the way to idol. Um, and there's a number of places in uh, Chronicles, Kings, Samuel, where the word that we get, image of God, image, is really just a, the, it's another word for an idol used to um, worship a pagan god. So I'm going to just jump through those really quick and uh, get to um, parallels in the ancient Near East. This is where I really think we get a really great sense of what the image of God is, what it means. And that is when we note texts that we have from, from Egypt, from Assyria, from Babylon. Um, we have texts, we have inscriptions on statues. We have a number of places where in the ancient Near East, outside of the Bible, particularly kings, are called the image of God. Um, in fact, we even get it, uh, one of the early Christian theologians um, talks about it this way. His name is Theodore. And he says, humans are the image of God like a statue erected in the center of a royal residence. And the idea is this. This is how it gets used. So you're an awesome king, and you charge through, and you uh, take over some country, right? And the first thing that you do after you, you, know, pil- you know, pillage and loot and defile, once you've done all of that, the first thing that you do is you erect a statue of yourself, Right? And you put it right in the middle of the, the town or the village. Um, in, in, ca- in the case of Alexander the Great, then you name the city that you've just taken Alexandria to remind them. The point is, is that your image, the image of Alexander the Great, the image of whomever, is right in the middle of the town or the village. And so that everyone knows who the boss is because they see the boss's image. Right? And, and moreover, if they like the boss they might be able to live in such a way that every good thing that they do brings honor to the boss, right? So if you like Alexander's reign, you're living in Alexandria, Egypt, and you do good things, what you're doing brings honor to Alexander because you see and live under the authority of his image. Um, moreover, we have some, uh, some texts, and these are particularly interesting um, Kings are called the image of God. So we have uh, Amun-Re, uh, who was an Egyptian god, is said to speak to Amun-Hotep, who is a, a pharaoh. He says, you are my beloved son, who came forth from my members. You are my image. And it's the Egyptian form of that word, Salem, whom I have put on earth. I have given to you to rule the earth in peace. Um, that's near contemporary to uh, the writings in Genesis. Um, we have a little bit later uh, from Assyria. Uh, this is uh, speaking about an Assyrian king, um, Tukulti Ninurta. It is he who is the eternal image of Enlil. That's the Assyrian high god. Attentive to the voice of the people, to the mood of the land. And you can see that, that kings themselves now are being called images. It's not just their statue, but the kings themselves are being referred to as the image of God. And what it means is that they are like God on earth. The, the, the character, the life of Enlil or of Amon-Re is, is expressed through this king. You notice in that, in that second one, the, the king is the image of Enlil. Why? 
Because he's attentive to the voice of the people, presumably just as Enlil is. Because he shares the character of the high God, he is said to be the God's image. Or for Amun-Re to Amun-Hotep, Amun-Hotep is said to be the image of Amun-Re because he's his son, he comes from him, he shares his DNA. And as such, because he's like that, he has a divine right to rule, he has authority in the world. A wonderful quote by um, a scholar, J. Richard Middleton. He says, The notion of the king as an image of God picks up specifically on the central function of uniting the earthly and the heavenly realms. The pharaoh or the king of Assyria or whatever was thought to be a physical, local incarnation and enfleshment of the deity, analogous to that of a cult statue or image of God, which is also an incarnation. And so you see in the ancient world, it's that kings are images of God because they are God to the world. They are physical now manifestations, incarnations, a very important word for Christian theology, of that God to the world. That is why they are said to have that God's image or likeness. They share God's character, God's DNA. They act as God's regent. They live in the world as God lives in the divine realms. Now you'll notice there's a difference. Notice that Genesis doesn't look at the the, the king, King David, and say, you're my image. Genesis doesn't say, King Solomon, you're my image. Uh, David doesn't look at a judge, or God doesn't look at a judge and say, you're my image. It's interesting that in Genesis and in the Bible, the image is bestowed on all people, all human beings. It's not just Tiglath, Peleazar, or whomever, Assyrian, whatever. It's all human beings bear this mark, bear this authority of God's rule, God's kingship over the world. They all have it. And, and you might even think this is analogous to the New Testament notion of the priesthood of all believers. Everybody shares in the responsibility and the privilege of being God's ruler, God's regent, God's king in the world, God's incarnation in the world. And moreover, if you read on about guys like Amon-Re and, uh, and Enlil, they're nasty gods. Uh, you might think that, some people might say to you that the Old Testament uh, version of Yahweh is very violent, very nasty. Not true. Uh, if you want to see nasty gods, you look to Israel's neighbors and you find out that uh, Enlil likes to eat people, for example. Um, Amon-Re is a, is a, he's just mean. He's mean with his justice. Yahweh's character as revealed in the scriptures is utterly at odds with the characters of pagan deities. So when the scriptures say that we all bear God's image, and they mean that we bear God's character, that character is fundamentally different than the character of pagan kings. And so here we have it. The image of God. I think that we can take from the Genesis texts and also from uh, parallels in the ancient Near East three particular um, aspects to what it means to have God's image. To be made in the image of God means, A, having the capacity to instantiate, instantiate or incarnate God's life and character. It's in your notes, God's life and character. The way that God actually exists, the way God thinks, feels, sees, can, is, is meant to be expressed through those who bear his image. And that's a capacity that all human beings have 
to, to um, instantiate or incarnate God's life and character. Moreover, uh, it also means the capacity to rule rightly in the world. It means having dominion or rule or power over the world. And that dominion and rule is not to be violent, it's not to be exploitative. In fact, you could think of it more as like being a really, really good gardener who tends and cultivates uh, the world around him or her. The capacity to rule rightly in the world. And thirdly, the image of God is the divine authority. Authority to fulfill this vocation. If you have the image of God, God has given you a role, a call in the world, and it is to be his king, his regent, his ruler, his cultivator. It means to have his life and character. That is the call of all human beings, all of humanity in Genesis 1. And I want to suggest to you that if you have this threefold image of what the image of God is, you can better understand why it is that human rule, human authority over the fish and the birds and the creepy crawly things is connected to the image of God. Namely, that it very much is God's call to rule. Moreover, in a little bit uh, less obvious, it, it does help us explain the blood for blood law. You know, if you spill this person's blood, then by this person's blood you will be spilled because you're in the image of God. Uh, it's, um, uh, the, the issue is that um, there's the issue of rule. So if we're called to go into the world and rule, then there's different ways that we can do that. And if we do it wrongly, if we do it badly, if we do it violently and coercively and evilly, then other people who bear that same exact call in their lives to go and to rule are going to look at what we're doing and be very, very upset. And they are going to push back. And they are going to spill our blood just as we've spilled others, because they have the same capacity and the same call to rule in God's stead, to be God to the world. The blood for blood law is not something that God says, go kill everyone who kills. It's just a fact of life if everybody is called to jointly and co-humanly rule the world or be God to the world. Now, if you're looking at all that, and you say, ah, the capacity to instantiate or incarnate God's life and character, the capacity to rule rightly in the world, and the divine authority to fulfill this vocation, that's the image of God. Awesome. It's really, really clear to me that everybody in the world has that. Or you might look around and you'd be like, uh, wow, you know, I, even in the church sometimes, I feel like we're not really incarnating God's life and character. Uh, we're not you know, freeing and liberating and peace bringing and, 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 and we're not doing all these things the way that God does. Moreover, I, I look at myself and the, my, my own limited power to, to, to exert God's sort of rule and cultivation of the world and it's, it's at best weak and small and fragile and at worst I find that I actually corrupt everything that I try to influence for God. Moreover, if God has given me this divine authority, it's really funny, I don't actually feel like that. And that's because we are, my friends, broken images. We all bear the image of God, but it is broken, and it is distorted, and it is corrupted. God has said, you have these capacities, I have given you this vocation, but you are no longer able to fulfill it. 
You have natural uh, limitations due to your imperfect bodies. People, everyone here has different capacities and abilities. Your abilities are not able, ultimately, to do the things that God has called you to do. Your body is broken. And this becomes very, very apparent when we deal with people who have uh, severe disabilities. They are not able, they are not physically, sometimes cognitively able to to do what God has said that you are supposed to do, do. The capacity has been fractured. It's been broken. It's been distorted. You have limited capacities because of your corruption in sin. You see, Adam, he was doing pretty good, but then problems happened, and his nature itself became corrupted. And so when, when we, when Adam and when all the rest of us try to bear the life and character of God, it becomes twisted, it becomes weird, it becomes wrong, perverted. When we try to exert God's rule to the world, God's gracious, loving, instituted rule, it, we find that we end up perverting the very things that we are trying to fix because we ourselves are corrupt. This image that God gave us, these capacities and this call is severely fractured. We have it only in part and only in corruption. And this is exactly why Paul in the book of Romans says, what can save me from this body of death? He looks in himself and he sees he does not have the capacity to do what he is meant to do. Which brings us to the Imago Christi, the image of Christ, the image of the invisible. This is from Colossians 15 to 18. And speaking of Jesus, Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Do you hear that language, friends? Do you notice what is so critical about that language? It is all the language of rule. It is all the language of kingship, which is the language of the image of God. According to Colossians 1, Christ has all of these things. He has God's life and character. He is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer. Uh, in, in, the, in the text, he's all him, by him all things are created. All dominions and powers, they are beneath him. He instantiates, he incarnates God's rule. He is the firstborn over creation. He has power over the authorities. Moreover, he shares the vocation that God gives to all who have his image. And that is, he has the authority. He has the preeminence in all things. You see, friends, we have broken images. We are broken images. We were put down in the world to be sort of like uh, God to the world. Creating, sustaining, cultivating. So that everything in the world, everyone in the world would look at us and then glorify God. And yet, we find ourselves broken corrupted and fractured and in our own lives and character we cannot do what we're called to do and in our rule we pervert the very thing we seek to save and yet here in Christ God provides his perfect whole image I'm going to skip ahead to um, just an awesome quote by the uh, second century century uh, theologian Irenaeus. Um, Irenaeus is one of my favorite theologians. Um, he is great when it comes to interpreting scripture and a lot of cool stuff. But 
This is what he says about the image of God. He says, but when he, Christ, the word, the logos, the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate and was made human, he summed up in himself the long story of humanity from Adam all the way up to himself. And he furnished us, the children of Adam, in a brief, comprehensive manner with total salvation so that what we had lost in Adam, namely to be according to the image and likeness of God, that we might recover in Christ Jesus. Friends, when you put your faith in this man, what's inside of you? This, bra- this broken, fractured jar, this image, this intention for, from God for you to be his regent, his agent on earth, it's, it's, it's in these pieces and it's put back together. In God's sight, through your faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you become whole. You are restored. You are once again the image that you were meant to be. Listen to Paul in Romans. He says, For whom God foreknew, he also predestined, what? To be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many. Paul again in 1 Corinthians, The first person, Adam, was of the earth. Made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are all of us who are born under the dirt. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. The one who bears the image of God has God's image. And as we have been born, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man Christ. Friends, you are a broken image. But through faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you become a restored image. It doesn't happen all at once. Notice that Paul says this is something that's going to happen in the future, right? We shall also. It's not fixed all yet. In God's perfect vision of the universe, my friends, he sees you as you will be on the last day. That's how God looks at you. Even though you are fractured in your life and character to this day, even though as you try to give God's rule to the world, it is perverting, God sees you as it will be. And yet, we live in the moment, in the time from which we take this broken image and we see it restored. Friends, when you, before your faith in Christ, you were self-centered. Uh, your life and character was me-focused. In Christ, we have the image of God who is self-emptying. Your rule over yourself and of the world was corrupted and distorted. It perverted. But in Christ, perfect self-command and a purifying shalom-generating rule to the world. And for those of you who've met people like this, like uh, Al Eaton, who we lost uh, just a few months ago, you know what a treasure it is that we have in clay pots. Our authority, friends, when our image is fractured and distorted and broken, it comes from us. We don't have an authority from on high. We don't have an authority from anything. We generate it for ourselves. And as such, it is groundless. It is empty. It is vapid. And it will be fractured. It is fragile. But your commission from God is a vocation that is enacted in the Spirit. And it is grounded in Him. It is whole. It is restored. And through it, because it comes from Him, it can be purifying the way that it's supposed to be. Uh, last thing. Uh, it's, a, it's a nice theological point. Let's just, you know, let's just say that that's, that's awesome. Okay, fair enough. Uh, we have these broken images and they're restored in Christ. But really, what does that mean? What does that mean now? 
Well, I think there's one very, very important thing that it means in terms of an exhortation. So when we're living our lives, right, and I'm trying to, you know, do the right thing, and I want to be God-like, and I want to be God to the world, you know, have God's life and character, I want to, to um, rule the way that he rules, cultivate um, in the world, and I also want to have uh, my vocation come from him. I want all these things, but if I look deeply, I know that they're not always right. And so usually what we, ought to, what we do in, in, as human beings, and especially as Westerners, is we take out the whip, and we say, you're doing a terrible job. The beatings will continue until morale improves. You gotta get better. You're no good. Come on, fix it. That's how human beings, and especially Westerners, approach the issue of change. Well, you've got this restored image, so now just live it out. And that's hard. Listen to Paul's not so moral exhortation. Paul says, So then, If anyone is in Christ, that person is part of the new creation. Literally in Greek, it's in Christ, new creation, exclamation point. You're not what you thought you were. The old things have gone away, and look, behold, new things are here, namely you all. All of these new things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and who gave us a ministry of reconciliation. You've got this vocation to be God to the world now, friends. Because you're new, you're different, you're not what you thought you were because you're in Christ. Your image, fractured and broken broken though it was, has been put back together. In other words, Paul continues, God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ. Listen to this, this is awesome. By not counting people's sins against them. Oh, oh, you're, you're doing such a bad job. You've got this thing from God to be the God of the world, and you're failing. That's not what God said. He said, I'm going to do it for you because I love you. He doesn't say, oh, pick yourself up by the bootstraps. He says, you've been picked up by the cross. He doesn't say reconcile by being super, super sorry all the time. And, and did it. he says, I've reconciled myself to you through the blood of my son. Your image is whole. And if you can believe that, if you can trust that, then the actions will follow, my friends. Because you really are this, even though you think you are that. You are new creation. You are the image of God to the world. His life, his character. His rule. Brothers and sisters, if you're like me and you, uh, you have a hard time pulling together your, uh, your moral living by your own strength, that's not how God does things. God didn't say, look at this image. Here's some glue. Put it back together. Instead, God said, if you knew who you were, you would know that I've done it for you. Let's pray. Father, we confess that you've put us together. God, sometimes it doesn't look like that. Sometimes it just seems like uh, we are just broken, fractured failures, incapable of living out your life and character, incapable of 
of instituting your purifying, shalom-generating rule to the world. And it seems like our authority comes from nowhere at all to do any of these things. But God, we confess that in Christ, who is your invi- uh, image, who is the, in- the image of the invisible God, that, Christ, that in Christ we have it all. That it's done. It's finished. It's complete. The image is perfect, restored, fully God, open our eyes to that and help us to just believe it. Trusting that as we understand it, that it will bear fruit. We thank you, God, for creating a whole people designed to be like you and to be you to the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.